You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Prophet, teacher, healer, riddler, rebel, savior. In his life and ministry, Jesus was many things to the people who met him, and the things he did and said impacted people so profoundly, their stories spread throughout the known world and, through the passage of time, came to us as scripture. Join us as we hear the accounts of these eyewitnesses, men and women who testify to the truth they found in the one named Jesus. Good morning. So I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised, as I've told you before, to fear Catholics above all people. There's a sermon that I gave when I was nine or 10, in which I, I, I told you this before, but for those of you who weren't here, there's a recording out there somewhere in the world of, don't try to find it, of me at nine or 10 preaching a sermon about sin, because what nine and 10 year old doesn't know a lot about sin? And I make a list of the most egregious sins I can think of that included the following. Smoke a cigarette every hour kill a person every hour, or be a Catholic priest. <laughs> right, so that, that's the world I was shaped in. I heard a great story once about a man, his name was Claude. His name has been changed to protect the innocent, but for the story, his name is Claude. He had never been outside of his county in Georgia. And then, for some reason, in his 70s, he decided he wanted to go on a missions trip to South America. And they ended up in Lima, at a cathedral there, Catholic cathedral, that has a 300-foot statue of Mary above the altar. It's a massive, massive, massive statue. And he's standing there, and the, the man who ordered the, was leading the mission trip came up to him and said, Claude, what do you think about this? You've never been out of your county in Georgia. You've never been to another church besides our church. What do you think about this? Claude said, preacher, it feels a little Catholic to me. <laughs> so this morning sermon might feel, you should laugh more at that. That was really funny. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this sermon might feel a little Catholic because I'm, I've been asked to talk about Mary. We're talking about figures in the Gospel of John who speak the truth about Jesus. And I've been asked to talk about Mary. I've been asked to talk about Mary because Robbie, Pastor Robbie, has heard me talk before about Mary. Um, and he told me not to say those things, but to say something else. <laughs> So I am going to say something else. I had this experience when I, was, when I was very young, probably around the same time that I gave that sermon on sin, that I was in my room saying my prayers like I was supposed to do, and suddenly I started singing. And I was singing, I realized that I was singing this song to Mary, thanking her for caring for Jesus for us. It scared the absolute nonsense out of me. 
You cannot imagine how scared I was. For one thing, I didn't intend to sing, and suddenly I'm singing. Which would have been cool. I mean, I was a Pentecostal kid. You love stories like that, right? You can brag on those kinds of stories. But you can't brag about singing about Mary. Like, you want to get excommunicated. That's the way to do it, right? Remember, smoke, murder, Catholic, right? Like, that, those are the real sins. So I didn't tell anyone until I was an adult that I'd had this experience. And then I had another strange experience. I, when I was young, I did a lot of drawing and painting, terrible stuff, mostly because my, my grandmother encouraged it, and I, I, was, I wasn't very good at it. But I loved to do it, and I did a lot of it. And then I stopped doing it and kind of went away from it. And after she died, I started doing it again. And one of the things that started happening immediately is that I found myself, it started actually in the first service I was in after her death. And the sermon was so bad. A lot like this morning will be for some of you. And I started drawing out of nowhere. And one thing led to another. And now I do it quite a bit. Maybe this morning someone will be inspired during this bad sermon to start a, a new hobby. I don't know. But I, one of the things that struck me is that I just found myself painting and drawing a lot of images of Mary. I don't know where that comes from. I'll share a few of them with you um, this morning. Some of them are kind of abstractions, like almost like line drawings, and some of them are sketches, and some are actual paintings. So I'll, I'll show you just a handful of the few of them, uh, of a handful or a few of them, uh, the ones that I've done. The, the first one that I'll show you is actually an image of Mary and Elizabeth. So the meeting that Mary and Elizabeth have right after Mary has heard in Luke's gospel, heard the news, and what what comes to me here is just, first of all, you can see how much older Elizabeth is. I wanted her to look a little bit like a, a witch, like the old hag in all the witch stories. And Mary, this child, really, young, young woman, how they're looking in opposite directions, and Mary is frightened. But you can see Elizabeth is, is confident. Right? She, knows, she knows what Mary doesn't know yet. The next image is more of a line drawing, more of an abstract piece, which shows... Mary bearing Christ, Christ in her womb. Like Again, there's the story in Luke's Gospel of Mary coming to Elizabeth's house, and as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, John the Baptist comes alive in Mary's womb and is filled with the Spirit. And so this way in which Mary is carrying the, the life of the world in, in her womb. The next image I'll show you is actually a series. There are three of them. This shows the Annunciation, the moment where Mary hears that she is going to bear a child. And you can see what, what's meant to be conveyed here is a sense of overwhelmedness, right? That the, the word is too much for her. How can this be, right? Let it be, but how can it be? The second image is of her holding the baby Jesus. And you can see how in the first image, if you go back, Robin, just for a, for a moment to the first image, you can see how you have those three circles that are approaching her. And now, when she's holding Jesus, there the halo around his head. And you can go to, yeah, to the second one. So there, it's become the halo around his head, and she's you know, holding him sweetly. And then the next image is of her holding the dead Jesus. And you can see now the three images, the circles, are separated from him, but without radiation. There's no, there's no radiating light. And... She's, there's one more that I don't have an image of that belongs in this series that shows her seeing the ascension of Jesus, 
But all of those were um, a part of a series. So, and you can see those are, those are more kind of sketches, kind of abstract um, line drawings. And then some, some of them are paintings. The next one is a digital piece that I did. No, that's not it. This is actually a painting that I did. This is the digital piece that I did, which is I sketched the, the lines and then copied them into a kind of photo editing software and, and made the image from there. But it's, again, a kind of traditional image of Mary with the dead Jesus. And a lot of what I've drawn, for whatever reason, has been, has been this. If you can go back to the painting now, this is actually a watercolor piece of, of Mary, which I, what I wanted to show is just some kind of the strangeness of her experience, right? Like in a lot of images of Mary, she's shown to be submissive. Like if you, if you just study the history of iconography and painting of Mary, she's often, she often looks uh, very submissive. But I, I wanted to try to capture something else, not quite submissiveness, but some kind of strangeness, an experience that we can't quite get, get into. So those are some of the pieces that, that I've done to give you a flavor for, uh, give you a sense of, of kind of what my experience has been like. I don't know where these paintings come from or these sketches come from. I don't know why I feel the connection to Mary that I do. I don't know why I sang the song that I did. But for whatever reason, since I was a little kid, I've had this kind of intuitive, almost subconscious sense of being grateful to Mary for Jesus. Now, I know that feels a little Catholic, but I don't worship Mary. No worries, I don't sacrifice goats to Mary or anything like that, right? Whatever it is that Catholics do. I know Catholics don't do that. I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding, right? I don't, they don't do that at all. Catholics don't worship Mary. They don't sacrifice goats to Mary. Most of them don't. But the, I, I, I'm not, it's not that. I don't, I don't have this sense of, of Mary being divine at all, but it's her humanity that for some reason stands out to me. There's something really startling to me about what it must have been like to be Mary, what it must have been like to, out of nowhere, hear God say, you're going to bear my life, and then to have to live with what it means to have been the mother of God. I, I, I just, it's overwhelming to me to think about what that must have been like humanly, and that's what I want to talk about, talk about this morning. We're focused on the Gospel of John, and Mary appears in the Gospel of John only two times, oddly enough. She, she, most Johannine scholars, or many Johannine scholars, think that John is, is purposely downplaying the role of Mary in, in Jesus' life. And we do see this with other figures. John the Baptist receives similar treatment in Luke and Acts, where the emphasis is that perhaps is on Jesus as over against John, or Jesus as over against Mary. So she only appears two times in the Gospel of John, but I actually think instead of downplaying her significance, John uses her to frame the experience of Jesus' life. So we only see her twice, but we see her right at the very beginning and right at the very end in decisive moments in Jesus' life. His first miracle at Cana, which we'll read about in just a moment, and his death. Those are the two times we see her. And she's linked to wine, the image of wine is, is, is how she's identified. So let's look together. John 2. Everybody still okay? No goat sacrificing people offended, I hope. John 2. 
I have this really bad habit of once I've made a joke, I can't quit making that joke. So throughout the rest of this sermon, there will be goat sacrificial, sacrificial goat references. Uh, that's just how it is. I can't help it. John 2. It's a familiar story, but it's, it's a story that, as familiar it is, as it is, it still doesn't get its due. It's actually a much more striking, provocative story than even we allow. Right. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And John, the writer of the gospel, he does this often, where he will make these kind of offhand references on the third day that, of course, we know is is hugely significant because of what happens on the third day. But it seems like a minor detail in the story. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Notice, she's not named. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, which is important, I think, that Jesus was the kind of person that you would invite to a wedding, at a wedding where they have wine. Not grape juice, wine. Most of the time I heard this text preached was to make the point that Jesus turned the water into grape juice, which is still a pretty impressive miracle, but not quite the same kick to it. Thanks. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. When the wine gave out, when the wine died, the mother of Jesus, again, notice she's not named, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now notice how subtle this is, how subtly the gospel just tells us that Mary notices and immediately goes to Jesus because she knows he can do something about it. Which means that at this point in Jesus' life, Mary already understands at least something about who he is and what he's capable of. And she's attentive to other people around her. And I like, I like to think of it this way. She, she knew from her experience with Jesus that she had to pay attention to the world in ways no one else did. Because she knew something about what was happening that no one else knew. And so when she's at a wedding, she's the first one to notice. The wine is dying. This is, this is going to be a scandal. People are going to be disappointed. And so she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Again, it's subtle. She doesn't say, do something about it. But she does. I think this is all moms have this spiritual gift of telling you what to do without telling you what to do. Right? They have no wine. Subtext, do something about it. And Jesus, who was not very respectful, he was not raised in the South, clearly, because his response is, woman... What concern is that to you and to me? Now, we often imagine Jesus as this kind, Mr. Rogers-y kind of personality. I love Mr. Rogers, but Jesus is nothing like Mr. Rogers, right? Jesus is something of a difficult person. And you can see it all through the Gospels, times in which Jesus just troubles everyone around him. No one understands what he says. When they think they understand what he says, they want to kill him for it. He's constantly grieved by their lack of faith and lack of understanding. Jesus is is a difficult person. And his response here is telling, woman, that has nothing to do with you and me. This is not our wedding. This has nothing to do with us. It is not my hour. My hour has not come. And again, I love this response. His mother, again, not named, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Right? She, she just takes what he says. She doesn't respond defensively. She doesn't even respond at all. She just walks away, says to the servants, do what he says. Because she understands the heart of Jesus, no matter what his mouth is saying. And this, I think, by the way, is the mark of a true believer, a person of faith, who hears the heart of God, no matter what it seems like God's word is saying. Mary hears him say, what is that to me? It's not my hour. But she knows him. And so she knows what he must mean. And so she says to the servants, do what he tells you to do. And sure enough, Jesus almost immediately does. Whether it was guilt or some kind of divine compassion, whatever it was, he, he goes to the servants and tells them to fill the jars with water. And they did so. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. The chief steward, of course, is the person who should have known that the wine was dying and who should have made it so that the wine would not die. But he hadn't. He was caught off guard. So they take him the new, they take him the new wine. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from. Notice this. He did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. Now, how you get grape juice out of this story, I'm not quite sure. But some people, they can make the Bible say whatever they want to say. It's, it's actually a gift or, or a curse. But they... They make this still grape juice. But you have kept the good wine until now. Everyone's blasted, but I can tell this is good. This is vintage stuff. Notice then how the gospel ends the story. Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And then he and his mother and his brothers go down to Capernaum. Now, what's so striking about it is that no one knows but the servants, not even the disciples know, what he's done. The only people in this event who know what Jesus did are the servants who carried the water and his mother. And the gospel says that's a revelation of his glory. Because here's the thing about our God. His glory is our joy. He doesn't need to get the credit for the miracle to be glorified. If we enjoy the wine, that is his glory. He doesn't, I mean, if I had been there, I would have broken up the scene for just a moment and say, hey, everybody, Jesus did that. Let's hear it for Jesus. Let's make him famous. But that's not at all what the disciples don't know to do. I mean, Peter would have done that, trust me, if he had known Jesus had turned the water into wine. But he doesn't know. The disciples don't know, and they still believe in him. Because one of the things the gospel is establishing right at the very beginning is that belief arises in ways we don't quite understand and Jesus' works are hidden from us, but they are works meant for our joy. That whatever Jesus is going to do in his ministry, it is for the sake of joy, for the sake of our joy. And his mother goes with him. And there's a lot I'd want to say about this story, but we don't have time this morning. All I really want you to take away from this, this first story is the fact that he calls her woman, not mother, and that the gospel never names her, but calls her his mother. Now, at the very end of his life, we see her again. And you're going to see the same kind of pattern, John 19, verse 25. And this is what the soldiers did. They've, they've 
torn, they've divided his clothes. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus, and again, notice where, where, where Mary is positioned. She's near Jesus, right? She's near the cross. Where his mother, not named, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So here we are. It's the moment of Jesus' death, and Mary is near him. And there, Jesus sees her and sees John, we know, to be the beloved disciple. But notice, John is also not named. In the entire gospel, he's only referred to as the beloved disciple. He's not named, and she's not named. And attention, Jesus' attention comes to the two of them, and he says, woman, here is your son, and this is your mother. And they're bound together from that, from that moment. I think this shows how important the writer of the gospel believes Mary to be. Because the writer of this gospel is a writer who's celebrating the beloved disciple as the, center, the centerpiece of the community. The beloved disciple is the exemplar. He's the one who shows us how to be Christian, how to follow Jesus. And he is first of all responsible for Jesus' mother. But the gospel is doing something, it's very intentional, not to name Mary, Jesus' mother, or John, the beloved disciple. And we know that he's doing it intentionally because he begins the gospel with a, a, an, an encounter with another disciple, Peter, who's paired with John. And Jesus names Peter. The very first time he sees, in the gospel of John, the very first time he sees Peter, he says to Simon, you are Cephas, you are Peter, you are a rock. That's the very first thing Jesus says to him. He names him. And at the very end of the gospel, right after the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's another disciple, Mary Magdalene, who's in the garden, and she's weeping because she thinks they've taken Jesus away. And then the gardener appears. And she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus until Jesus says her name, Mary. And as soon as he says her name, she recognizes him. So the writer of the gospel is very intentionally making a contrast between the disciples Peter and Mary Magdalene and John and Mary. The first two are named Peter and Mary Magdalene. The second two are not. Jesus' mother, and the beloved disciple. Now, when I first noticed this, it really bothered me. It really, really bothered me. And I don't know exactly entirely why it bothered me, but what hit me was it, it felt like Jesus was disrespecting her. It felt like Jesus was refusing to acknowledge the bond that he actually had with her. It felt to me like Jesus was preferring Peter and Mary Magdalene to the beloved disciple and to his own mother. I mean, I don't know how you hear it, but when I hear him call his mother woman, I don't hear respect. I don't hear kindness. I don't hear affirmation. I hear dismissal. In the gospel, in, in another gospel, we have a story that seems to confirm this, which Mary and Jesus, either cousins or brothers, come to see him. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, your family's waiting for you, just, just outside there. And Jesus looks at, toward his family, and then in front of the whole crowd says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? This is my family. What must that have felt like? 
What must that have felt like? To have been the one chosen by God to bear God. To have borne God. And to have lived with God, lived with Jesus all of his life. And now see him coming into his ministry only to have him brush you aside. Only have him go out of his way to make the point. You're not my mom. These are my mom. I can't imagine what that's like. There's an iconic tradition in Christian representations of Mary called the Sorrowful Heart of Mary, which shows Mary with seven swords in her heart. She's holding a heart, her own heart, and there are seven swords piercing it, the seven sorrows of Mary. And the, this comes from the story, again, in Luke's Gospel, where Mary is dedicating Jesus. You remember the story, right? And... Simeon says to her, he will occasion the rise and fall of many, and a sword shall pierce your heart also. Right? So that at this moment of dedication, which should have been a moment of joy, the last note that struck is that, Mary, you will suffer. He will cause suffering, and you will suffer. He will cause the rise and fall of many, and a sword will pierce your heart also. And so the, the tradition has identified seven different sufferings of Mary. But I actually think it's the eighth sorrow of Mary that's the most painful. And that is to have her natural son, her son, Jesus, not acknowledge her as his mother. Not call her by her name or even call her mother. Just woman. And the more I thought about why it was bothering me, the more I realized that I think... This eighth sorrow is a sorrow that I, I've experienced at least somewhat. Not to the degree Mary did, of course, but in some way. And I suspect that a lot of us have. And that is the sense that Jesus isn't noticing us, really. Not like he's noticing other people. Other people get named and have these kind of cataclysmic moments where God breaks into their life and calls their name and changes everything. Where God just appears and acts in their life so dramatically that their, their life is better. It goes from bad to good, from darkness to light. In a moment, God just appears and acts and their lives are changed. He calls their name. But he doesn't call my name. My suffering doesn't change. My doubts don't get answered. My prayers hardly make it out of my lips. And then, it's not that I'm not happy for those of you who get called by name. Well, I'm more normally happy for you who get called by name, but there are times in which I just, I want to scream. And I, want, I can imagine Mary wanted to scream, I'm your mom, treat me like it. Talk to me like I'm your mother. Don't dismiss me. Don't say other people are your mother. They didn't bear you. They didn't live with you for 30 years. You're a difficult person, Jesus. I lived with you for 30 years before anybody got to know that. I mean, take it as irreverent if you want, but I think she, had been, she was used to Jesus talking to her that way. That's why she didn't say anything at Cana. When he said, woman, it's not my hour, she didn't bat an eye because she'd been with him for 30 years. What is it like to, to live in a relationship with God, to keep showing up every Sunday morning, to keep reading your Bible and praying and giving in the offering and coming to the table and never feel like Jesus is calling you by your name? I, I think it's deeply painful. 
And it reminded me of the story of Mother Teresa. Everyone, of course, knows Mother Teresa. But what not a lot of people know about Mother Teresa is that her relationship with God was dark. For almost 40 years, the only experience she had was of God abandoning her. All those 40 years, she kept showing up in the streets to care for children. She kept appearing around the world, testifying to Jesus' goodness. But she wasn't experiencing Jesus' goodness. She tried to have these letters and her journal destroyed, and her bishop wouldn't allow it. And now they've been published. They were published about 10 years after her death. So about 10 years ago. And there are countless examples like this. I'm going to show you two. Now remember, this is Mother Teresa. When we think about saints, most of us, that's the first person we'll think about. We think about someone who has kind of carried their cross and gone the extra mile and turned the other cheek and lived the Christian life to the full. It's someone like Mother Teresa. But this is what she said, first of all, in a letter to a friend. Jesus has a special love for you. He calls you by your name. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great. And what's part, part of what's so painful about this is that this letter was written in the 60s, and it never got better. But long before she died, this was her experience. Jesus has a special love for you, but as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves, but does not speak. And then in her journal, later, she says this, In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me. Now, sermons are strange things. I don't know why God instituted the sermon as part of our worship. I mean, I can count on my hands the good sermons I've heard in my lifetime. I certainly remember the bad ones much more than I remember the good ones. And most of them are just forgettable. So one of the reasons that's true is that in a crowd like this, there's no way that I or any person could speak to all of you. Our experiences are too different. We're all at different places in our lives. Many of us in this room right now, there's so much anxiety and fear in us because of what's happening in our lives, you can't even hear anything I'm saying. And that's not your fault. It's just where you are in life. Some of you, you're you're on the mountaintop. Some of you aren't sure if you're in the valley or the mountain or which way you're headed. There's just too much difference among us. There are too many people in the room with too many different experiences. And each one of us relates to God in a different way. But I do think that there has to be at least a few of us who know a little bit about what this feels like. What Mother Teresa is naming here. God not wanting me. That's so much worse than just God not answering my prayers. I'm sure all of us know what it's like to ask God for something we don't get. But it's worse to feel like, not that God just won't give you what you ask for, but that he doesn't want you. And that it's Mother Teresa who feels that. And this must have been, must have been, what Mary felt at points in her life with Jesus. What What I think of as her eighth sorrow is this experience, this ongoing experience of loving Jesus in a way he did not love her back. Now, I know this, again, it might strike you as irreverent, but I think there are a lot of us in this room, 
in other churches this morning who feel like that's what our relationship to God is like, that we love God better than God loves us. We would never say that out loud because you're not allowed to say things like that out loud. That's even worse than being Catholic or smoking cigarettes. To be unpious in that way, to act as if God is, I mean, we, God is good all the time, right? You and I both know better than that. And just the ability to name that pain is important. Just being able to be honest with yourself and say, yes, that is what I feel like, God. And then, I, so I prayed into this. God, what are you doing? Why are you treating your mother this way? Why are you treating your best friends this way? I just, last week I was in, in the UK teaching a class, and the theme of the class was friendship with God. So one day after class, Julie and I took a walk. She made me take a walk. <laughs> And she's to, to kind of deaden the misery for me, she said, talk to me about your class. And so I said, well, I'm talking about friendship with God. And she chuckled and said, you have a friendship with God? And I was like, actually, I do. She's like, what's that like? I said, a severe disappointment for both of us. Because <laughs> that, that's what it feels like most of the time. I mean, when I do get kind of special experiences, it's singing to Mary. I can't tell anyone about that. What kind of comfort is that supposed to bring? Right? When, when I spoke in tongues for the first time, I know this frightens some of you, but the first time I spoke in tongues, I was asleep and woke my parents up speaking in tongues. And my parents came in and said, you spoke in tongues, because it was an important thing in our church. And I was like, well, I didn't hear it. Does it count? I don't know if it counts if you don't hear yourself <laughs> speaking in tongues. Really, I didn't know. I, I didn't know where to look to find the answer. So I, I, I just want to be vulnerable with you. This is what my relationship with God feels like most of the time. I feel close to him. I don't feel like God has abandoned me. I feel like I'm there. But it doesn't make any difference. I had another kind of spiritual experience. A few years ago at a retreat, we were on a prayer retreat, and we were in a time of prayer, and I had a kind of vision in which I was, at the end of, end of this gospel, in fact, I was with the disciples in the boats when Jesus calls to Peter from the shore. Right. So after Jesus resurrects in, the, in this gospel, he's cooking on the shore, and the disciples are out trying to catch fish. And Jesus calls out to them, and Peter says, it's the Lord, and dives in and swims to the shore. And the other disciples slowly come to the shore. So in my vision, I stayed in the boat. And I could see Jesus and Peter talking. And I could see this group of disciples watching Jesus talk to Peter. And I'm in the boat watching it all. And in my prayer, all I could feel was anger at Jesus. Not that he wasn't talking to me, although I'm sure that was there. But that he was just talking to Peter and not all these other disciples. Why does Peter get all of your attention? I mean, he's really not good at this. I mean, he gets everything wrong. You're like, he's a conduit of Satan, for goodness sake. Like, he's, he's going to deny you. He's going to be the reason. I mean, he's as bad as Judas. Why do you talk to him all the time? And that's all I could feel was just, Jesus, don't you notice there are other people who care about you too? And then it hit me. There are some people who feel like they never get named. 
that's actually a gift and not a curse. Because that's how we know God. God has given Jesus a name that is above every name. And Pseudo-Dionysius, who's a major theologian in the, in the early church, huge influence on medieval Christianity, Pseudo-Dionysius says that the way to come to know God is to learn his names and then to learn that there's always a greater name. So whatever name you have for God, God is greater than that name. And whatever name that is revealed to trump that former name, there's a name that's greater than that name. Until, he says, you come past the point of all names into the heart of the one who can't be named. What if that's why he's not naming us? Because by not naming us, he's sharing with us his own namelessness. That the mystery is just too deep. It's not that we're not experiencing his love. It's that the love is so deep, we don't experience it. He's so close, we don't even notice. And I think this must be, there must be something to this, because look at what happens at the cross. Jesus sees Mary and John, and then he tells them to relate to each other the way they had related to him. This is your son. This is your mother. And maybe this is what Jesus wants. Maybe those of us who feel like we're not getting named, it's because Jesus is calling us to be Christ to the people who are around us. We're trying to experience something from Christ when he wants to say, no, be me to them and let them be me to you. That our attention is turned toward him waiting on some kind of experience and he's trying to turn our attention to one another. Look to one another. I, I think, I'm almost done. I think that a lot of us have been taught to look for a kind of spiritual formation, a kind of discipleship that will lead to these cataclysmic moments where God names us, God calls us by our name. But here's the truth. Everybody who gets named in scripture, their life is a wreck. <laughs> and it gets worse after they get named. And here's the thing. Those people who have that experience, I mean, think about Mary Magdalene, think about Peter, think about Abraham, think about Sarah. I mean, these, these people are people who need to hear their names called. But even when their name's called, there's more change to come. There's still ways in which that, there has to be another name called. Our, our spirituality should be more like a tabernacle than it is like a temple. We don't have an experience with God and suddenly everything is stable and set forever. If you have a temple, God has moved on. God wants us to have the kind of spirituality that's like a tabernacle. Yes, you put it up. Every night you put it up, but guess what you have to do the very next morning? Take it down. And this is what mature walk with God looks like. Everything you think you've experienced from God, that's fine. Build a tent for a night, but take it down in the morning and move on. Because there's something more God wants for you. There's another name God wants to give you. And if you're not feeling named, it's because he's already calling you to that place. Just don't look to build a temple. He wants more for you than that. He wants more for you than the experience of being called mother. Because here's the thing. By calling her woman, he's saying, you are more than my mother, not less. You are my mother, but that doesn't define you. You're John's mother, too. 
and you're Joseph's wife, and Anna's daughter, and a friend of all these people, and a friend of God. You're me. She's not just mother. She's woman. John is not just John. He's beloved. And at the cross, Jesus' attention is on the two he never named, but who stand for what all of us are called to, to be more than just what our name has been. In the Revelation, there's a promise to one of the churches that if they persevere in triumph, he will give them the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name that no one knows. It's important that those two things are paired because you know what manna is? You know what the word manna means? What is this? That's what our life with God is like. Waking up every morning, striking the tent, and picking up what God has provided for us, which makes no sense. What is this? I mean, in just a moment, we're going to come to this table and we're going to do something that's familiar to us, but nonetheless strange. We're going to eat bread and drink wine, grape juice, and say that it's the body and blood of Jesus. What is this? What is this? But there's something about him leading you by manna, by these things you don't understand, is that he's leading you either through namelessness to a new name or through new names to the final new name. So here's my word of encouragement slash warning to all of you. No matter how you feel like you relate to God right now, no matter what you sense about your relationship to God, if you feel like Peter and Mary Magdalene and you feel that God is calling you by your name and God is intimate with you and God is close to you, good. But that won't last. You're going to have to take that tent down and move on. Enjoy it while it's here. Eat the manna. It tastes like honey. It's wonderful. But it, it will vanish. On the cross, the scene right after Jesus connects Mary and John, it says, And Jesus, knowing now that everything was finished, knowing now, after the two of them had been related to each other the way they had related to him, knowing now that it was finished, he says, I thirst. And they give him sour wine. So you can see how that pairs with the first miracle where others were thirsty and he gave them sweet wine. And at the end, he is thirsty and they give him sour wine. And Mary is there for them both. And that's what it means to be a true lover of Jesus, a true friend of God, is that you're there for the sweet wine and the sour. And you remember that this is not really about you or me. Not really. This is about being with Jesus. This is about being with Jesus' friends. This is about coming alongside Mary and John and relating to each other the way he's related to us. So again, whether your relationship with God right now is mountaintop, sweet, whether you are experiencing things out of the body in the third heaven like Paul did and you can't tell anyone about it but you put it on Facebook anyway, like whether, <laughs> whether that's your experience or like me, you feel like, God is close but not comforting. God is near but not paying attention to you. The good news slash bad news is you're going to have to take the tent down in the morning anyway. There's more. There's more. 
There's more that God wants for you and from you. There's more that God means to give you. We can't settle here. I told you that Mary is often presented in the literature and in the iconography as submissive. Oh, thank you. She's often presented as kind of the model of feminine deference. And so this, these words she says to God at the beginning, when the angel comes to her and says, you shall have a child and you shall call his name Jesus and he will save people from their sins. You know, eventually what she says is, let it be. But there are two ways to hear that, I think, at least two ways. One way to hear it is as submissive and deferential. Whatever you say, God. But I like to hear it as bold and prophetic. Whatever you've got, God, let it be. Let it come. Name me or don't name me. Call me Mary or call me woman. I'm here with you. And I'm going to be here with you when you, it feels like you're mistreating me. And I'm going to be here with you when it feels like you've forgotten me. And every morning I'm going to get up and take the tent down and I'm going to move on. Because where you go, I'm going. Let it be. So this morning, whatever your experience with God is, let it be. It may seem sour, but it is sweet, I promise. It may seem he's forgotten you, but he hasn't, I promise. I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to anybody else. He means more for you than you can imagine. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.